0: Everybody. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, David.
2: Thank you, David. Okay and thank you all for coming um, what I'd like to do is read from the uh, introduction to Stars and Strikes which kind of explains why I wrote this book in the first place and then we're going to have a little slideshow of various uh, pop cultural and baseball highlights from 1976 and then if we have time I might read a little something else and then uh, we'll do a Q&A if anybody uh, has questions um The introduction is called, Play That Funky Music, because uh, that was my favorite song in 1976 and uh, sort of uh, my unofficial theme song for uh, while I was writing this book. Why 1976? For me, it all goes back to a friend's birthday party in the April of that year. Tim's parents, a couple of free-thinking post-hippie types, piled a bunch of us fourth graders into their customized Dodge conversion van and took us all to see the Bad News Bears at Ann Arbor's Fox Village Theater. When we returned to their house, our minds suitably blown by the experience of seeing kids who looked and talked, and best of all, swore, like us on the big screen, we each received wax packs of Topps baseball cards as party favors. These were my first baseball cards ever. The next day, my father patiently explained to me how to read the stats on the backs of the cards, and my transformation into a full-fledged baseball freak had officially begun. 1976 was the year I got my first baseball mitt, a cheap two-tone orange and burgundy Bud Harrelson model ordered from a Sears catalog. I attended my first major league games in 1976 and read my first issue of the Sporting News while grooving to the top 40 sounds emanating from my AM transistor radio By sheer luck, it also happened to be the year in which Mark the Bird Fidrich became a bigger pop-cultural sensation than Dorothy Hamill Bruce Jenner and the Fonz put together Padres lefty Randy the Junkman Jones seemed, for a few months at least, on course for 30 victories and Mets slugger Dave Kong-Kingman pierced the ozone with tape measure home runs. While new new Braves owner Ted Turner and returning White Sox owner Bill Veck lured fans to their ballpark with one bizarre promotion after another. Billy Martin led the New York Yankees to the postseason for the first time since Lyndon Johnson was president. Danny Ozark's Philadelphia Phillies and the Whitey Herzog-helmed Kansas City Royals emerged as exciting contenders. And Sparky Anderson's Big Red Machine rolled to its second straight world championship. In other words, it was a tremendously thrilling time to be a 10-year-old boy immersing himself in the myriad joys of the summer game. 1976, of course, was also the year of the bicentennial, that nonstop nationwide party celebrating the United States of America's 200th birthday. But while we were all wrapping ourselves in red, white, and blue, and saluting our founding fathers, our country was moving through a year of heavy political, social, and cultural transition. We were finally, or so we thought, putting the divisive era of Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War behind us, and searching for a renewed sense of optimism and connection in everything from CB radio and Frampton Comes Alive to Olympic glory, Jimmy Carter's presidential run, and Rocky. No longer at war anywhere in the world, and with the Cold War beginning to thaw, we focused our collective paranoia on things like busing, urban crime, swine flu, and Legionnaire's disease. (laughs) Disco and punk rock, two of the decade's most important and divisive musical movements, were cooking in New York City and elsewhere, that they wouldn't reach full boil for another year. Hip-hop, which wouldn't explode until the early 1980s, was already rocking hard amid the burned-out neighborhoods of the South Bronx. 1976 was also a crucial transitional year in baseball history, one in which the players finally won their war against the reserve clause, despite the best efforts of owners and Commissioner Bowie Kuhn, thereby ushering in the free agency era and radically altering the game's economics forever. It was a year in which San Francisco nearly lost the Giants to Toronto, and the city of Seattle successfully sued the American League for a new franchise. It was a year that witnessed the reopening of Yankee Stadium and the final games of future Hall of Famers Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, and Billy Williams. It was a year in which the Oakland A's owner, Charlie Finley, having almost single-handedly built one of the greatest dynasties in baseball history, proceeded to dismantle it like a stolen car in a chop shop. Yet, 1976 is also a year that remains woefully underappreciated under by baseball historians. Primarily, or so I've long suspected, because its World Series was a one-sided affair that ended an, an exhilarating season on a dour and chilly note. While writing Big Hair and Plastic Grass, I realized that the 1976 season was so rich with electrifying moments, oddball events, and unforgettable characters, all set against the star-spangled backdrop of the Bicentennial, it truly needed and deserved a book of its own. After all, what other season can you name that featured a headlock and wedlock promotion, major league players wearing Bermuda shorts, and not one but two Harpo Marx lookalikes starting against each other in the All-Star game? Ah, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Why don't you just kick back on that red, white, and blue shag rug, pop in that 8-track of the first Boston album, Pour yourself a glass of Matus rosé and get better better acquainted with baseball in the bicentennial. I'll leave you two alone now. <laughs> Let's see if I can I can do this. Okay, so we're going to start out with a picture that I believe that I really wanted to include in the book, but just couldn't afford the the licensing rights. But this is a photo that. Uh, pretty much sums up everything I love about 1976 and baseball. Uh. (laughs) That is uh, Kansas City third baseman, George Brett, um, clowning around in a Richard Nixon mask. Uh, This is not even two years uh, since uh, Richard Nixon has resigned in uh, uh, disgrace. And uh, you know, it was, uh, at, at this point, you could pop on a Nixon mask and uh, give you know give the "I'm not a cook" uh, peace sign, and uh, you know, and nobody thought it was in, in any way offensive. And uh, um, the last vestige of Nixon's uh, administration, of course, was uh, in the form of Gerald Ford. This is a Frisbee that was one of many uh, tossed around during the Republican National Convention in Kansas City that August. Um, lots of people did flip their Frisbees over Ford. In fact, he almost, uh, he almost won election uh, in November against Jimmy Carter, who, uh, whose grin did in fact win in 1976. 1976 was a real year of transition, not just in baseball, but in a lot of, uh, and not just in politics, but in a number of uh, pop cultural areas as well. This is a year that basically starts out with Taxi Driver, which is this incredibly gritty, um, uncompromising film about uh, a guy in a, um, you know, a sort of loner in an urban setting. And it ends with another uh, film about a guy in a gritty, a loner in a gritty urban setting. And uh, the two films, of course, ended very differently. Uh, <laughs> Taxi Driver, not quite the uplifting film that Rocky was. But I, I, I really believe that if Rocky had come along a year earlier, I don't think it would have uh, been the hit that it became in 1976. I think in 1976, People were ready to kind of step away from the anti-heroes that were populating uh, the American cinema in the in the mid-70s and go for something a little more feel good. Speaking of feel good, <laughs> Peter Frampton, um, whose uh, blonde shirtless demeanor um, really pretty much summed up everything about the kind of uh, mellow vibes that people were looking for in 1976. Frampton Comes Alive, uh, his double live album, uh, was one of the biggest records of the year. Several hits off that on uh, AM radio. This is Johnny Taylor. Um, This is the back of his Eargasm LP. Uh, Johnny Taylor had a huge hit in 1970. He was a great soul singer um, who'd been having hits for years, but he had his biggest hit in 1976 with a song called Disco Lady, which was actually, I believe, the first R&B song to sell a million copies. And, uh, you know, the disco hadn't completely... Peaked at uh, Saturday Night Fever levels, as it would uh, in a, in a little over a year. But the fact that a song called Disco Lady was topping the charts meant uh, that it was the disco thing was definitely already happening by 1976. And speaking of which, this is uh, Nick Cone's um, New York Magazine cover story that. Mm-hmm. Became, or that was the basis for Saturday Night Fever. Um, this came out in 1976. Nick Cohn was a British journalist who had recently moved to the states, and later admitted that he basically made this entire story up. He uh, was was hanging out in in, uh, in discos in Brooklyn. But basically based all his characters on uh, kids he knew from the mod scene in England back in the 60s. So, which is interesting. So when you look at uh, John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever, now he's basically Brooklyn's version of a mod. This also came out in 1976. So it wasn't really, even though Peter Frampton uh, and Kiss and uh, P-Funk were, you know, really the, you know, the big sellers of 1976 um, uh, and the first Boston record, which was also a huge hit in 76. Uh, th- this record and the first Boston record were made for about the same amount of money, which is a pretty interesting fact considering that the two records could not be more diverse in their uh, approach or uh, sonic architecture. But a uh, hugely influential record, uh, especially in England. And um, you know, so so punk was was already uh already happening in New York and uh getting underway elsewhere. That's a young Nick Nolte uh in a uh TV miniseries called *Rich Man, Poor Man*, which most people don't remember now, but was such a huge hit in 1976 that it pretty much birthed the whole miniseries, uh, if not the concept, it, it popularized it. Uh, *Roots* came the next year, and uh, we've just you know been inundated by one miniseries after another. And I think you know the whole HBO pretty much owes its existence to to uh, the success of *Rich Man, Poor Man*. Another big TV uh, debut in 1976, Charlie's Angels. Uh, Farrah Fawcett was the pinup of 1976. And this introduced uh, what many commentators at the time referred to as jiggle television, um, thanks to uh, the bra nature of the Angels. <laughs> One of the things I love about 1976 was the, uh, and the bicentennial celebrations in particular was the kind of folk art aspect that people were going out and they were painting their their fire hydrants, they were painting their mailboxes uh, red, white, and blue. And um, you know it was, it, as much as the bicentennial celebration was kind of cheesy in that it was very, it was really kind of crammed down everybody's throats totally overhyped, but there was something very sweet about, you know, every town had their bicentennial bake sale, and and every town went out and painted their fire hydrants, and it really, you know, brought people together in a very nice way that, as far as I know, it's been the only time in my life that I've seen Americans come together not motivated by a war or uh, disaster, and uh, so... You know, this is, this is a, this actually still exists. This is the door of a firehouse in the West Village in New York City. And I, I took this uh, when, when I was there uh, about two or three years ago. But then you also had things like this. <laughs> you know, the Bicentennial was also basically just, you know, an excuse to sell shit. And uh, Bicentennial Beef Cookbook. I know I, I think of meat when I think of the Bicentennial. And uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, as actual curious as to what uh, you know. Uh, I don't think I could even name 20 great beef dishes. Uh. Uh, There's a little thing for red, white, and blue shakes at McDonald's. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Ronald McDonald was not hauled. Uh, hauled Hauled in to to help out with this. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, hearkening back to the American Revolution for those of you who weren't there. And, uh, you know, which as a 10 year old kid who was really into uh, history, especially military history, I just thought this was awesome. You know, uh, Revolutionary War reenactments, lots of, you know, uh, references to our founding fathers, and, you know, even uh, revolutionary drummer boys at McDonald's. Uh, basically, if if you could put it in a can or bottle and sell it, uh, you came out with a special bicentennial package for it in 1976. This is Falstaff beer, uh, which is long gone, but uh, their bicentennial can lives on. This uh, On the far right is uh, Chicago White Sox owner Bill Veck. Um, he, this is opening day at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Um, That is uh, White Sox manager Paul Richards in the center, and uh, Rudy Schaefer, who is a front office guy for the White Sox, uh, on the drums. And as you notice, uh, Mr. Vec has an actual peg leg, which he put into great use uh, for this. And uh, I believe he said, you know, if you've got if you've got a guy with a leg you've got the uh, the casting beat. <laughs> so th- this was sort of a surprise, and this is, this was it for for fans. They didn't know this was going to happen, um, and it was one of many uh, oddball things that Vec cooked up in the summer of '76 to bring folks out to the park to see a very lousy team, but they would also see uh, you know whatever Vec was getting up to that day. The uh, the Spirit of 76 uh, took many forms. Here, are the Mighty Marvel Bicentennial Calendar. We got Spidey, Hulk, and Captain America, of course. He wasn't going to be left out. And then it showed up again in uh, this poster for The Spirit of 76, a uh, porn film starring John Holmes and Annette Haven. <laughs> One of the big moments of the July 4th bicentennial celebration, like where it really all kind of culminated, was this thing called Operation Sail, where boats from all over the world, tall ships, came and sailed into New York Harbor. Uh, Interestingly, the um, delegate, um, the three masted delegate from Columbia, did not make it because uh, they were busted in Florida offloading a whole lot of cocaine. So uh, another thing that was very sweet about this, and you can kind of see in like the, in the illustrations here, that like it's not all tall ships. There's a lot of like smaller crafts, and basically anybody who could put anything on water that would float was welcome to join in. I mean, this would not happen today. The security, the you know, the the liability uh, issues alone would have. Um, would have prevented this from happening. This is what, next is one of my favorite pictures from Operation Sail. It was taken by my friend Roger Steffens who was uh, uh, along, the, um, uh, along the Hudson River watching the boats go by. <laughs> You know just uh, wanted uh wanted to join the party and uh he actually has a life uh, vest with him there've I've seen many photos from um uh, from operation sale where people were just out there you know on a like basically a raft with deck chairs and no 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 nothing safe about it. And, of course, there's bicentennial fashion. Uh, Liberace striking a very uh, uh, revolutionary pose here. Um, uh, You know, this is the more extreme version of it, but, of course, there were all sorts of red, white, and blue clothing uh, options available that year. Uh, Even Barbie, uh, the Barbie doll, had a special red, white, and blue um, series of outfits, and and a colonial outfit as well. Speaking of fashion, this is uh, three-time Cy Young Award winner, Tom Seaver, modeling um, uh, leisure suits for the Sears Men's Store. Seaver was really about the one of the biggest stars in the game at the time, and this is about the best he could do for uh, endorsement deals. So you think about uh, how, how things have changed in that regard, and certainly how things have changed uh, in terms of fashion. I mean, the, those those uh, jackets look like they were actually cut from AstroTurf and uh, probably um, were genetically similar. <laughs> This is this picture is this is uh, Chicago Cubs pitcher Rick Rushel, aka the Whale, aka Big Daddy. Um, a friend of mine likes to refer to this as the Mona Lisa of 1970s baseball. <laughs> And I, I just adore this picture. I mean, he's—he's. He's, this is him after a game. He's got—he's um, got you know beer cups in hand. You can't really see it. It's a little whited out here, but he's got a pack of cigs in his sports shirt pocket. And you know, this is this is this is my idea of a classic '70s athlete. You know, just like a big guy, he's not ripped at all, but you know, is fast on his feet, great pitcher, and uh, and he has this really kind of inscrutable look on his face, which uh, is is quite charming. Dave the Cobra Parker, one of the great hitters of the late 70s, one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, The man had flair, as uh, you can see here. And uh, the Pirates, uh, who had been kind of a powerhouse team for much of the 70s, got off to a really bad start in 76. And, uh, you know, to try to uh, pump his teammates up, uh, Dave got a custom shirt made, which quoted from uh, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker by uh, Parliament Funkadelic. And it didn't really work, but it made for a great picture. And you also see he's got a medallion on under the shirt that's kind of showing through. And uh, two great hats in this picture, his, his own personal kind of superfly brim, and then the Pirates pillbox hat. Uh, a lot of uh, team, National League teams in 1976 wore hats that looked like that. It was kind of uh, in celebration of the National League centennial. Uh, the National League had been formed in 1876. So this was sort of their old timey uh, reference to that. The greatest baseball card of all time. Oscar Gamble's 1976 Tops traded card. By the time I and uh, so many of my friends found this in our Tops packs, uh, that Fantastic Afro had been trimmed um, to about half its size. Oscar had joined the New York Yankees in the offseason uh, from the Cleveland Indians, and George Steinbrenner and Billy Martin had very strict ideas about grooming standards uh, for their players. So, and before he could even get fitted for pinstripes, he was uh, he had to submit to a serious shearing. Uh, one of the great things about Topps traded cards from 1976 and. Really, from that era, is the terrible airbrushing work that's uh, done. I mean, that, that I mean, that, his cap probably was close to that size, but it, it's it's uh, pretty uh, pretty haphazardly uh, put together. But even worse are the pinstripes, which are you know the, the uh, you know, just like their attempt to try to try to make an Indians uniform look like a Yankees uniform, and not a very successful one. This is a very famous uh, Los Angeles, uh, 1976 moment. That is Rick Monday from the Cubs, uh, their center fielder, uh, thwarting a couple of would-be flag burners in the Dodger Stadium outfield. This happened in late April, 1976, and the um, gentleman in the middle. Um, basically, brought his son down onto the field, and together they were going to try to burn a flag in protest of the fact that his wife and and his son's mother was incarcerated in a Missouri mental institution. And why they chose Dodger Stadium for their as the forum for their protest has never fully been uh, been explained. But it but uh, Monday managed to snatch the flag away from them before they could set it a fire, and that kind of turned him into this this. Um, bicentennial hero it was it was an act that really resonated with people you know in a year that were so much Kind of patriotism was being forced on people's throats. This was a very genuine act, and um, you know, Rick, Rick couldn't go anywhere uh, the rest of the summer without getting a commendation or two from the local Daughters of the American Revolution chapter. And uh, um, and then Tommy Tommy Lasorda was so impressed. Tommy, who was a Dodgers third base coach at the time, and you know, who always claimed like, "Yeah, I was going to go out there if uh, if Monday hadn't," um, he uh, he was so impressed by Monday's act that when he uh, he took over from Walter Alston at the end of the season, uh, Monday was very high on his list of, of players that he wanted to bring in for 77. That is Jimmy the Toy Cannon Win, who uh, played for several teams, but in 1976, he was playing for the Atlanta Braves, who, um, thanks to t- to new owner Ted Turner, uh, had a brief period where they wore their nicknames on their back of their, their uh, uniforms. It didn't last too long because uh, the Braves, who were a terrible team, actually played even worse with the nicknames on their backs, and uh, ballplayers being a superstitious lot, uh, they, they decided decided after about a month to do away with it, but yes, well, and right, uh, Andy Messersmith, who was the uh, Braves' new uh, high-priced pitcher. Uh, wore number 17, and um, his nickname was Channel, or at least that's what Turner had him put on his back because Turner's TV station was WTCG, which could be found at number 17 on your TV dial. Uh, Nationally, President Chub Feeney uh, immediately uh, scotched that, so that's advertising on a uniform. You can't do that. <laughs> It's another one of my favorite pictures from 1976. That is Lori Cabot, a Salem witch, (laughs) watching Dwight Evans of the Red Sox as he takes batting practice. Uh, The Red Sox, who were the defending 1975 World Champions, were off to such a bad start that a Boston radio radio station paid Cabot to essentially decursify. What you know, the you know, they were clear they'd clearly been cursed, so she was going to help out. And so she hung around for a couple of days and read their auras and you know, <laughs> played some magic spells and it it worked for a little bit but uh but not for long. <laughs> The aforementioned two Harpo Marx lookalikes who started the uh, 1976 All-Star Game—that is, Mark the Bird Fidrich on the left, who had a uh, who came out of nowhere to have a fantastic rookie season and uh, you know wound up starting the All-Star Game for the American League—and that's Randy Jones on the right, uh, who also had a fantastic season for the Padres. He was more well known, but they were both kind of you know uh, neither of them were real fireballers. They both kind of relied on a lot of movement and uh, off-speed stuff. And uh, um, Jones, Jones actually blew out his arm anyway at the end of the year, but he still won the Cy Young Award. And uh, Fidrich won the Rookie of the Year Award in the American League. It's Jack Brohammer of the Chicago White Sox playing in short pants, which is uh, something that the White Sox did for three games uh, in 1976. This is another uh, great Bill Vec idea. And uh, there, are, there are a lot of photos out there of the guys in shorts, but this is I choose this because Jack Brohammer is the answer to the very obscure trivia question, who is the only ma- Major League Baseball player to Homer while wearing short pants, and that is Jack Brohammer. Ellie Dodgers third baseman Ron the Penguin say this is the picture sleeve from his ill-advised 1976 single "Playing the Third Base Bag," <laughs> which uh, you know, like, basically makes the shag sound like Led Zeppelin. And uh, uh, we did get a lot of Doctor Demento airplay at the time. I remember the Penguin was my favorite player in the 1970s, and and so I was very excited. And I love Doctor Demento, so it was very excited when the I was very excited when the two of them came together. Another wonderfully awful record from 1976, uh, "Philly's Fever" by the uh, hit group Cash, Boa, Schmidt, Lazinski and Maddox. <laughs> This is this really has to be heard to be believed. This is like a combination of Philly Soul meets disco meets uh, C.W. McCall's Convoy. <laughs> uh, CB radio was of course a huge fad in 1976, and so um, at one point, so there's a lot of CB lingo th- thrown around during this song. Uh, at one point, uh, Dave Cash says to Gary Maddox that uh, Veterans Stadium is the place to be, and Gary Maddox replies, "10-4, good buddy." <laughs> it's another great uh, picture of uh, Mark the Bird Fidrich with his, uh, his namesake. Uh, Sesame Street's Big Bird. By the end of by August, when this photo was taken, uh, the bird was really the not only the biggest star in baseball, but you know, it was it had become this sort of pop culture icon. I uh, one of the many reasons I loved him was because he seemed kind of like a member of the Bad News Bears, grown up. He was goofy, flapped his arms around. He Talk to the baseball on the mound, or at least he appeared to. Uh, he would drop to the mound to smooth it, smooth out the cleat marks left by other pitchers. He would, whenever one of his fielders made a good play, he'd run over and congratulate him. Uh, he he just seems so psyched to be out there, and it's really um, you know he really only had one great season. He had only had one full season. He started 29 games for the Tigers in 1976, and then due to injuries, he only started 27 more games over his entire career. And, uh, you know, but he he shone very brightly for that one season. And speaking of the Bad News Bears, uh, this to me is still the greatest baseball movie ever made. And I would like to uh, read a little little bit about it. And uh, then we'll go to a uh, Q&A if anybody has any questions. Film critic Roger Ebert called it an unblinking, scathing look at competition in American society. Jay Cox of Time described it as a fracturing comedy of honor, victory, and defeat. Sports Illustrated's Martha Smilgus characterized it as a cross between the dirty dozen and lilies of the field. (laughs) But little leaguers everywhere simply thought the Bad News Bears was the coolest baseball movie they'd ever seen. A tartly scripted comic saga about a no-hope Little League team from LA's San Fernando Valley whose roster is comprised largely of, quote, a bunch of Jews, spicks, niggers, pansies, and a booger-eating moron, <laughs> and who are reluctantly coached by alcoholic former minor leaguer Morris Buttermaker played with hangdog Magnificence by Walter Matthau. The film shocked and amused audiences with its unrestrained vulgarity, as well as its unflinching portrayal of the ugly competitiveness lurking at the dark heart of Little League Baseball, and by extension, America. Refres- refreshingly free of sentimentality or, ha- or happy endings, unlike so many baseball films before and after, The Bad News Bears follows the kids as they ascend against all odds the climactic championship game, only to lose to their arch nemesis Yankees on the final play. Though ostensibly a kid's film, The Bad News Bears was actually closer in tone and spirit to such classic 1970s anti-hero oriented ensemble flicks as, as M.A.S.H. and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, rather than, say, The Apple Dumpling Gang or Escape to Witch Mountain. Under the assured direction of Michael Ritchie, who had previously directed the 1975 teen beauty pageant comedy drama *Smile*, the young actors in *The Bad News Bears* came across not, un, not like the blandly adorable—I'm sorry—not like blandly adorable Hollywood moppets, but like actual mid-70s kids: unwashed, obnoxious, mean-spirited, gleefully profane, unrepentantly juvenile, yet also far more worldly than their counterparts from a decade or two earlier would have been. In one memorable scene, local mini bike riding adolescent delinquent Kelly Leake, played by Jackie Earl Haley, brashly informs 11-year-old Tatum O'Neill that he hangs out at the league field because of the abundance of nice ass there. <laughs> the adults in the film, of course, behave even worse. Mathow teaches his bears to mix martinis and presses them into pool cleaning duty, well, uptight, win-at-all-costs, Yankees coach Vic Morrow strides them out and slaps his own son for disobeying his pitching instructions. The preseason league meeting scene, which takes place at the local Pizza Hut, may be the most accurate portrayal of banal 70s suburban existence ever committed to celluloid. While there are positive messages subtly interwoven throughout, throughout Bill Lancaster's script, like O'Neill's Amanda Wurlitzer, who proves that girls can be just as tough and competitive as boys, Buttermaker informs his frustra- and Buttermaker informs his frustrated charges that quitting is a hard habit to break once you start. The Bad News Bears isn't a feel-good film in any traditional sense of the term. In the end, Buttermaker is the only one who really grows up. The kids are all too busy dousing each other in Budweiser. So, uh, anybody have any questions before we uh, move along? So,
0: yeah, you know, you really you capture capture the culture like nobody else. I mean, this is incredible. That kind of ugly competitiveness that really arose, I really felt, maybe even from the moon launch, that kind of American, you know, go get them and knock everybody down. When did that fall out of favor, and what were the factors that brought us into what's happening now, which is, it's so unfashionable to be, like, competitive to that
2: um, well I'm not I mean that, that's a huge question uh, <laughs> I mean I, I definitely feel I definitely feel like in the bi- as I write elsewhere in the book I, I feel like one of the things that was great about the Bicentennial was that for this brief moment in time we were kind of embracing our inner Ben Franklin as opposed to our inner John Wayne. It wasn't like you know I mean we'd come out of Vietnam and that hadn't ended well and we'd come out of all this period of uh, uh, upheaval and where you know Americans are essentially at war with each other over, you know, all kinds of topics. And for a brief moment in 1976, a little before, a little after, we kind of came together and we're like, hey, this is kind of a cool experiment and it kind of worked and th- there's a lot to celebrate here. I don't feel like it lasted very long. And I think certainly, you know, by the time Reagan comes into office in 1980, you see, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, pardon my French, it's America, fuck yeah, all over again. And, and not in the, uh, you know, you know, we've accomplished so much, but in that we can kick everybody's ass. Um, I think, um, you know, as, as far as like, are, are you talking about competitiveness in sports or?
0: There's something in air right now, I think with the economy and um, and the 99% where the feeling is much more cooperative. Like, I don't know, it just, there's like a weird mix of pre-riot and, and Mellow cooperation and camaraderie, and it's so hard. I I try to capture the cultural moment. What we're going through right now is so historic and so amazing. You know, I just feel that. I remember. I remember growing up in this America you're describing, and it was so different in feeling. Than now, yeah, and I'm just trying to, you know, you you seem to capture the factors so well into why we're all, and it was great. This '76 was great. It was a great year. We were all together. You're
2: right. I mean, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, problems that still haven't been solved, and there was a whole um, thing in Philadelphia where there there was going to be this march on Philadelphia of basically, you know, every kind of left wing group that still existed (laughs) that was was going to. You know march in and demand uh, you know justice for for the Native American all this, and uh, Frank Rizzo, the mayor of Philadelphia, was so freaked out by this that he tried to call in the National Guard before they even showed up and uh, and that actually was a huge put a huge dent. In uh, Philly's tourists, um, you know the 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 money they made from tourism that summer, because especially around the July Fourth weekend, because there was all this worry that it was going to be like Chicago '68 all over again. So it's not like everybody was, you know, all you know, you know, feeling good and happy, but it seemed a little a little more so than uh, you know just five years later. 76 like the ABA and the NBA version, you know that, so that was the big deal. And then earlier in the 70s when the WH started,
0: and they kind of copied the AFL, laboration merged with the NFL, but it was an interesting time. I was happy so, as a fan too, Dr. J were trying to get a single So a lot going on.
2: Yeah, no, Dr. J, uh, I write about him a little bit in the book because, you know, he's Dr. J. You kind of got to always mention him. I mean, that 1976 was the year that he, of, of that ABA slam dunk contest at the All-Star Game. And, you know, he did, you know, that going practically from half court to uh, to slam it. And, you know, that was, that was, I remember that being the talk at my school for weeks after. Just like, man, did you see Dr. J? Of course, like none of us had, you know, VCRs or anything. So all we could do was talk about it. There's no way to watch it again.
0: <clears throat> so it seems like the uh, kind of the baseball stars or even sports stars of yesteryear, you know, that big personalities, but they were viewed as like folk heroes. Whereas today, it seems like they're more known for, for bad behavior. What what do you think changed there?
2: Well, I think some of it has to do with the changing economics of the game, where. People, I think people could relate much more to players in the 1970s because most of them weren't making a whole lot more than your average middle-class American. I mean, you know, the, the most famous example, a lot of players had to take jobs in the off-season. I mean, the, there were guys like Carl Yastrzemski and Hank Aaron who were making, you know, 100, dollars $150,000 a year. But then there were a lot of guys who were making, you know, 20, uh, Mark Fidrich made I believe $26,000 is rookie year and uh, you know 19,000 19, of that was rookie base the rest was like bonus so uh, you know and there was a famous the most famous example is Richie Hebner of the Pirates who dug graves in the off season to make ends meet so uh, you know I think once the free once free agency kicked in and you see the and salaries becoming inflated it's less like yeah you know he's, he's a cool guy it's more like yeah, he's, a, you know, he's getting paid all this money to play a kid's game. Mm. What year was that? Uh, well, 1976. Okay. And uh, the 1976 is when you have the first free agent draft, you know, full scale. And it just kind of, you know, rockets from there. Um, Catfish like In 76? Yeah. Well, Catfish, had, like, it, it was definitely one of... I can't remember the exact numbers. It was... I believe the biggest salary in baseball up to that time, but then I'm pretty sure Reggie Jackson got a bigger salary when he came to the Yankees at the end of 76, and that started a whole... And a candy bar. Well, you know, candy bar wasn't until 78, but the, uh, um, but yeah, I, I, but to answer your question, I mean, it's interesting because I think a lot, there are a lot of players now, or maybe not a lot, but there are some who could qualify on that kind of folk hero level, but they just get kind of picked apart in the media because like, you know, they're, they don't play the game right or they disrespect the game or, you know, they're not, um, everything has become so much more corporatized and so much more kind of, you know, you have to conform in a certain way. And that's what I've, I think it makes baseball a lot, of, and all sports a lot, lot less interesting. Anybody else? Jeff. Favorite player, favorite player, who, was in the favorite player who, well, so you're assuming I'm a Phillies fan. I'm actually not. Um, my my uh, favorite player was Mark Fidrich. I I was a I I'm a Tigers fan since the mid '70s, and uh, you know, and the Tigers were terrible in the mid '70s. So to have a guy like Fidrich just kind of come out of nowhere and every and like you know he's on national television. I mean you know that made you feel like like you know you were real because you're rooting for this guy who you know is loved all over the country. Uh, yeah, d- definitely. My my favorite was Fidrich, and and uh, um, you know Ron Say was my favorite at the time. But um, and and you know still still love him from that era. I guess my other big favorite from the as a kid was uh, Lou Whitaker from the Tigers, but he wouldn't come around for another couple of years.
0: Were the MVPs and Cy Young winners was it
2: Joe Morgan? Uh, uh MVP in 1976 National League was Joe Morgan for he won his second straight that year. Uh, AL was Thurman Munson with the Yankees. Um NL Cy Young winner was Randy Jones and AL Cy Young winner was Jim Palmer. And you know, if you, the, the way of looking at statistics was much different in 1976 than it is now with all the sabermetrics and advanced uh, stats and it's interesting because if you look at the if you look at Mark Fidrich's stats for 1976 he should have not only won if you're going just by those stats alone he should have won rookie of the year as, but also won the American League Cy Young and the American League MVP but that wasn't going to happen for a guy from a fourth place team
1: uh, You're from the Detroit area? Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor. Nice nice shirt. I didn't even know this was
0: happening. (laughs) Perfect.
1: Um, But uh, what do you think? I'm around your age, and so I've always thought when you grow up in that area in the time that we grew up, it, it kind of formed my opinions of music and pop culture Sure. because of the milieu of Detroit and all the music that comes out of there. How does that affect your writing in general?
2: Well, well, I mean, I'm a, I, I pretty much grew up on Cream magazine, so I was, you know, and and I've been, you know, making my living such as it is for the last twenty years as a music journalist. So uh, a lot of my, you know, writing and writing style comes from ingesting all of that stuff. Cream, of course, being the great Detroit rock magazine, and uh, but I, I mean, I I really think that you know, nothing happens in a vacuum and I think in the 70s in particular you get baseball and pop culture really colliding in ways that it hadn't before and that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's fascinating that like all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, the influence of black power on the ball field. You're seeing, you know, you know Doc Ellis is pitching a no-hitter on LSD and is pitching lots of other times on lots of other things and, uh, you know, it, it's it's not this sort of like I mean, I, I've, I've, I have trouble with the, the kind of Ken Burns approach to baseball history because it's very kind of, you know, sepia-toned and put on this pedestal and, you know, it's all that is good and great about America. But I think, I think what happened in the 70s in baseball was very American, but it wasn't all that great in, in every case. In some cases, it was fabulous. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the way these things come together. And I, I, I mean, like, every chapter in my book is a song title from 1976, just as like a subliminal way of kind of like, you know, like getting a soundtrack playing in your head as you read it. And because as a kid, in 1976, I was hugely into baseball, and I was on, you know, the floor of my bedroom playing Stratomatic and listening to AM radio and so it, it was all part of one big thing.
1: My, my first game was Memorial
2: Day 1976.
1: The bird Bay. Really? It was, like, it was like a rock concert. The place
2: was sold out. Because my, my first, my first uh, game was uh, May 30th at Tiger Stadium that year so we and the bird did not pitch and the Tigers lost four to nothing and it was <laughs> sorry? They played Yankees. Oh, and and I got to see Billy Martin thrown out of the game before the game even started, which it was like during the exchange of lineup cards at home plate. And we were, you know, because as you certainly remember, you could just walk up to Tiger Stadium and get like a nice seat behind home plate uh, because there wasn't a whole lot of competition for tickets. And I remember sitting there with my dad and like just watching, I mean, you could hear like, I mean, Billy Martin was as far away from me as you are and you could hear him screaming. And I just remember turning to my dad like, what's going on? Like what's you know? I just didn't understand at all, and he's just like, you know, I'll tell you later. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I think Billy probably it was a Sunday afternoon, so Billy was probably really hungover from Saturday night and wanted to get over to the Lindell AC and and you know get some hair of the dog in him. a good segue question, uh, but you have to channel uh, Earl Weaver for this answer. Uh, What did you think of David Kingman's performance? (laughs) <laughs> actually, that's Tommy Lasorda who, uh, oh, that's right, that's and that's na- and that's 1978. So I'm not going to touch it. No, no, no. Weaver we did one too. That was so. Blue. Oh yeah that 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 was actually early 80s and that that was a joke. That was never actually broadcast. That was just like sort of a running joke he had with. uh yeah, it's worth looking up. Earl Weaver tirade on YouTube. It's, uh, it's basically like in the form of a, co- a radio call-in show, but all his answers to these really mundane questions are as blue as uh, blue can be. I was just amazed. I mean, you would not see that anymore. No. Billy or any of those. Well, and, and Lee Elia got, you know, uh, he didn't get fired for it, but he was, you know, he he had one foot out the door after his tirade in 1983. So, so yeah, no, I mean, everything is so much more buttoned down now, whether it's the players talking to uh, reporters. I mean, Reggie Jackson basically used to use uh, his interviews as therapy sessions. <laughs> and, you know, and you never knew what was coming out of his mouth, and I don't think he did either. So, uh, and that made for a lot of trouble uh, a lot of times. But, yeah, you would not you would never see any of that now. When you were doing the research on the book, were there any
0: sports writers that you came across that, you might not have, that people might not know that when you read them you go like, wow, why was this
2: guy more of they Not particularly. I mean, I think, I think you know, I, I read a lot of the beat writers from all the teams and, you know, and all of them were at least famous in their, Areas you know you know whether you 're talking Joe Falls in Detroit or Furman Bisher in uh, Atlanta um, yeah nobody nobody really s- stuck out as like you know this sort of like great lost sports writing talent. I, I can't say yet because I haven't pitched it. So I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm waiting to see how this one does out the gate. And if I've got a little more leverage this time, uh, then, then I'll, I'll approach uh, St. Martin's with a, a really good idea. So. Because so. in 76, there was a big
0: brawl with the Yankees and Red Sox and Yankee Stadium building on shoulder parts. Right. You know, now you don't see as many fights
2: now. like that.
0: There's a hike in with Adams
2: right well, well, that's what I mean I really feel like like the bad news bears. I, you know, it was just a complete coincidence that it came out in 1976. But like that kind of attitude is all over baseball in 1976. Whether it's the Yankees, Red Sox brawl that you're talking about, which is the most famous one, and that's where you know Billy practically gets his arm torn off. Um, but there were like there were some in, insane ones. Uh, there was one between the A's and the Royals at the end of the season, where uh, Tommy Davis, who the Royals had just picked up from uh, the Angels, uh, for you know to give him a little. Extra offense uh, uh, down the stretch, uh, went into the stands at Oakland with an umbrella and beat several fans on the head with it, and you know it made the papers. But that was it; like nobody got fined, you know, because the fans had been throwing beer at the players and they they went after them. It's so, like the broad street bullies. It is like the broad street bullies. I mean, and it's, and it's the same era. It's 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 really. Um, you know, you see a lot more of that, you know, also with like the fans running on the field at the end of uh the uh, uh last game of uh the American League playoffs after Chris Chambliss hits his his pennant-winning home run. It's just like people wanted to be involved and it wasn't necessarily in, you know, the best possible way, but uh but it was exci- it was exciting, you know, and certainly as a kid to like watch anarchy erupt. You know, it's, it was awesome. Anyone else? You know, you talk about salaries. What would it take, I mean, t- I remember when I was t- in 1976 in New York, you could get a ticket to chase things for a buck and a Right.
0: And now, what's it cost I mean, It kind of costs 50
2: bucks. Right, well, you know, I mean, th- that has changed as well, but I don't think you can lay all of that at the foot of free agency. You know, I think, I think players costs, is. But how
0: does that change the way you know, how do you see that, that change the
2: game? That back then the crowd had much closer reaction yeah, to go. Yeah, well, I definitely think. Well, you know, if you there's a picture in in Stars and Strikes of Shambliss, uh running, trying to run away from fans as he's trying to circle the bases, and I love the picture because it's this great melting pot image. You get, you know, and and, and everybody looks like you know they just. Happen to have five bucks in their pocket, and they put down for a playoff ticket. And there, there's this great, and in one corner of the picture, there's like like a couple of little Jewish kids with yarmulkes, just like dancing around. And and it's it's um, yeah. You you just uh, when I look at that picture, I just think like you will never see a crowd like that at a baseball game again. Just like you know, the middle class and and the lower class has been you know effectively priced out of. Or, you know, I mean, you could you know maybe go to a game or two a year, but it's you know it's it's you know th- i don't i don't even know what it costs to t- take a family of four to a game you know especially when you factor in you know soft drinks hot dogs souvenirs i mean it's it's a it's a house payment <laughs> well right well yeah that that yeah that, that's not going to happen anymore you know you, they, they weren't tasing people who ran onto the field in 1976 i'd like to thank you all for coming i'd like to uh, thank David and Skylight Books for having me and doing this thing. When, when uh, the, the uh, several months before the book came out, I, I just thought like I would love to do something at Skylight because I love this bookstore. And it was just a complete coincidence that, uh, you know, I sent off an email just kind of fingers crossed and I get an email back from a guy who's a huge baseball fan and actually love Big Hair and Plastic Grass. So this was clearly meant to be. So thank you, Skylight.